about the state and so forth, and I do justice. And he's like, oh, how about that? How about justice? Like, okay. Uh, so I have to warn you, I have a 60-minute talk in front of me. <laughs> you don't want to hear me talk for 60 minutes, and I don't want to talk for 60 minutes. And your kids certainly don't want to hear me for 60 minutes. But I'm just saying 60 minutes over again and again, so that when I say I'm only going to go for 30 minutes, it feels better. All right? And maybe I can even do it a little more quickly than that, and have some questions. This is not a sermon. This is not me exhorting your hearts. This is, this is a Bible study. I find that Christians use the word justice a lot. We all like to talk about justice, whether you're on the political right or the political left. Social justice, what is that? Or structural justice, what is that? But we've never really kind of opened up our Bibles other than a proof text here or a proof text there, which we use to sort of back up our political preferences that are already there. I know my political preferences. Let me find a verse to support that. Well, hold on. Let's just do a little Bible study. What, what's justice in the Bible? I have seven questions I want to try to answer. Maybe I'll get to them all. Maybe I won't. Number one, how does the Bible define justice? Before answering that, though, let's just, how, how do people commonly do justice? What, what's the American concept of justice? What does the Bible come and speak to in our moment? Well, in, in America we tend to think of justice as respecting people's rights. I have my rights, you have your rights. Justice means affirming and protecting everybody's rights so far as we can. People talk on the right, talk about individual rights, and people on the left these days increasingly talk about group-like rights, but everybody's talking about their rights. And when rights come into conflict, what do courts do? Courts show up and they try to adjudicate and draw the lines where we can most maximize respecting everybody's rights. But that's the basic idea. Justice means respecting people's rights. And that seems like a nice compromise in a country with many different worldviews and many different religions. We can at least respect one another's rights, right? Well, it's not quite that simple. Which rights do we respect? The right to an abortion? The right to define my own gender? The right for a man to marry a man? Well, it depends on who decides which rights are right. It depends on which god or gods define your rights. Everybody begins with the conception of what's right based on who their god or gods are. And based on who our god or gods are, we have a view of what's right. And based on our view of what's right, we say these rights are right. You see? So behind the curtains, as we're talking about rights and arguing about rights, we all have a god or gods telling us which rights are right. What do we do with that? As Christians, we go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about justice? That's question number one. The word justice first occurs in the Bible when God says he chose Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to the nations. It's Genesis 18, 19. I'm going to give you a bunch of texts. Maybe just write them down if you want. You're not going to be able to turn to all of them. Genesis 18, 19. Abraham and you and your descendants will be a blessing to the nations by keeping the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice. 
that word justice shows up 125 times in your ESV, if that's what you're using, Old Testament. And over half of those times, the word righteousness is right next to it. Righteousness and justice. The, the, the lesson there is that biblical justice must always be measured by the standards of God's righteousness. Okay? Justice and righteousness in the Bible begin with God's own character. God's law, which expresses God's character, makes right right. You see? It makes fair fair. It makes what is due what is due. If God has not declared something to be right, it cannot be just. It cannot be fair. If, if he has not said, you are due this, then you are not due that. If, if, if he has not said, this is fair, then it is not fair. There's not some neutral God out there, some neutral brand of justice out there. There's only God's justice and those that oppose God's justice. That's it. Those are your only two options in the Bible. Not only that, justice as right precedes justice as rights. In order to figure out what our rights are, we have to figure what does God say right is. Pay attention to the S. Right comes before rights. You with me so far? Making sense? A second lesson we can learn within the broader usage of justice in the Bible is that it's interchangeable as you look in your EFBs and you look at what's translated as Justice, sometimes the same Hebrew word is also translated as judgment. It's interchangeable with the English word for judgment. Justice, you could say, is the noun form of the English of the verb to judge. Justice in the Bible, first and foremost, is an activity. It's the activity of applying a judgment. Okay? So putting these first two lessons together, justice and righteousness always work together, and justice is an activity of rendering judgment. We can, we can define justice in the Bible this way. Justice is rendering judgment according to God's standards of righteousness. Justice is, in the Bible, justice is rendering a judgment according to God's standards of righteousness, or we just simply righteous judgment. Justice is righteous judgment. Okay? There's a standard. Think of a ruler. Or a scale. There's a standard. That's, that's, that's the standard of righteousness. And then there's applying that standard or rendering a judgment according to that standard. And that is what justice is. Think of Israel's response when Solomon discovered that which of the two prostitutes was telling the truth to her baby. He's like, that's the real mother. And they, they respond by saying, Israel stood in awe of the king because he perceived that God's wisdom was in him to do justice. He had rightly rendered a righteous judgment. That, that's the real one, you see. And so every time you see the words justice in the Bible, you can almost substitute these two words, righteous judgment. So Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, the Lord is a God of justice. You could say the Lord is a God of righteous judgment. 
Proverbs 29.4 says, By justice, a king builds up the land. By righteous judgment, making righteous judgments, a king builds up the land. What we Westerners call rights are only right when and where God says they are right. And justice involves respecting rights when and where God says we must. Okay? Question one. What is justice in the Bible? How do we define it? It is righteous judgment, or, or rendering a judgment in accordance with God's righteousness. We good so far? Okay, that, that's the foundation. Question two. What does it mean then to do justice? What does it mean to do justice? This is, a, this is a question that launches Christians into heated arguments. Especially as we think about, okay, what's the relationship between justice and mercy, or justice and generosity? Take a verse like Psalm 112, verse 5, which says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Blessed is the man who deals generously, who conducts his affairs with justice. Is that second line building on the first line? Or is it saying something different? Some Christians, like Tim Keller, will say that justice can require us, therefore, to be generous. And so he wrote a book called Generous Justice. And he would point to a text like this one. Blessed is a man who deals generously, who does justice. Those are the same things. They're in parallel. He would say. Other Christians would say, no, 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 you're confusing two things. If you're turning justice into generosity and saying justice requires generosity, well then it's not really generosity. It's generosity. So let justice be justice and let generosity be generosity. Say other folks. A similar debate will erupt among Christians about the relationship between justice and mercy. Think about how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for neglecting, quote, the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness, Matthew 23, 23. Again, some Christians will point to this text to say justice and mercy belong together. If you can do what is just, you must do what is merciful. Right? Others would respond by saying, well, no, those are two different words with two different meanings. And you undermine mercy and what mercy is if you call it justice, and you undermine what justice is if you call it mercy. So what do we do? Well, I think what's missing from the conversation here is the distinction between what a word means and what that word calls you to do. Get a little academic now here on you, okay? Make a fine distinction. Think about the word kindness. What does the word kindness mean? Well, it means of a sympathetic, beneficent, and helpful nature. To be kind is to be helpful and to benefit other people, okay? What does kindness require you to do? Does it require you to give money to the homeless man? Or does it require you to withhold money from the homeless man? Well, I, I guess it depends, doesn't it? What, what if you know that that person is extremely hungry and is going to use that money to buy food and kindness might impel you to give money to that man? But what if you know somehow for certain that he's just going to use it to buy drugs? Well, kindness might require you to withhold the money. You see? 
So you, so you have what the word kindness means, but given the circumstances, given the context, it might require you to do something this or, or that. And so it is with justice. What does justice mean? Well, justice means, we define it as righteous just, ju uh, judgment or administering righteousness. Generosity, mercy, they mean something else. Period. They're different words, they have different meanings. But that doesn't limit our ability to say that justice might require an action that would otherwise be counted as generous or merciful. So the Good Samaritan acted generously, yes, in one sense, but is there not also a sense, and we might also say he acted justly, that his act of correcting an injustice that occurred was in fact a kind of justice, rendering a right judgment. And, and simultaneously, yes, it was an act of mercy. Okay, the larger point here, I'm trying to be, help us think carefully about how that word is used in the Bible, and I want to make a distinction between what the word means and what it requires, what it, what it does, and here, here's the larger point. It depends on the context in which you are in, that justice will require one thing or another. So, for instance, in the context of a courtroom, Justice doesn't show partiality or accept bribes. Deuteronomy 16, 19, Exodus 23, 2 and 6, Lamentations 3, 33, 35. That's the courtroom. Let's go to the marketplace. In the marketplace, justice insists on, quote, just balances and scales. That's swindling people. Proverbs 16, 11. In God's economy of redemption, sometimes justice requires punishment. But for those people on whom God has placed his name, justice actually requires, get this, redemption, salvation. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. Isaiah 1.27 What's also hard to miss is how often justice in the Bible involves defending the needy and lifting up the downcast. In Psalm 82, verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. How is he executing justice for the needy? He is maintaining their cause. He maintains the cause of the afflicted. That's how he executes. I know their cause. I'm going to get behind their cause. And that's justice. Administering righteousness. Rendering righteous judgment. Isaiah 1.17. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 5.28, they know no bounds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Or of indictment. The word justice means righteous judgment, yet doing justice very often means upholding the cause of those who have been the recipients of injustice. 
the needy, the afflicted, the fatherless, the weak. In general, my sense is very often the political right emphasizes justice as putting down wrongdoers, while the political left emphasizes as lifting up the wrong. The Bible emphasizes both. They are two sides of the same coin. We see this in Psalm 72's description of the perfectly just king. May he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, not just the needy, but the, especially the children of the needy, and lifting them up, and crush the oppressor. So this perfect messianic king will both lift up the downcast and crush the oppressor. He does both. Justice involves both. Number three. Number three. Why are the biblical covenants essential for understanding justice? If you want to understand justice in the Bible, you have to understand the biblical covenants. Okay? It's not enough to say justice must be measured by the standards of God's righteousness. That's too broad and undefined. We need to see the fine print. We need to understand the context. We need to understand especially the covenantal context. By analogy, for me to do righteousness and justice in the context of my marriage means I have to understand what God has required, the fine print for a marriage, right? Whereas me for, to do, for me to do justice and righteousness with my home mortgage means for me to look at the, the fine print for my home mortgage and repayment of that mortgage. And what's re required of righteousness and justice for my mor mortgage is different than what's required of justice and righteousness for my marriage. Make, make sense? Okay, so we need to pay attention in the Bible to what are the covenantal terms. What's the fine print for determining righteousness and justice for this situation. Not only does the Bible provide common covenants and special covenants, common covenants for all people, special covenants for his people, it also establishes institutions, specific institutions, to oversee the common covenants and to oversee the special covenants for God's special people. For the common covenants, what are the two institutions he establishes? There's two, anybody? Government is one. What's the other? Family. And what's the institution at this state of redemptive history he establishes to oversee the special new covenant? The church. So as I'm asking, okay, what's the responsibility of justice for family, for state, for church? I'm going to look at the terms of the common covenants. I'm going to look at the terms of the special covenants. So in terms of my mortgage, terms of my marriage, you see, in the same way. We want to debate the obligations and applications of justice. We need to pay better attention to what covenantal requirements are in play and what institutions he has established. We need to see the fine print. That's question three. Why do we need to look at the covenants to understand justice? Justice in the Bible is always covenantal. If you didn't hear anything I just said for the last five minutes, just justice in the Bible is always covenantal. Got it? Okay. Number four. Is there such thing as structural injustice in the Bible? 
Is there such a thing as a structural injustice in the Bible? Well, it depends on what you mean. If you're talking about concrete, identifiable, legal, and social structures, well, of course, yes. Think of about Haman who convinced Ahasuerus to enact a genocidal campaign against the Jews in the book of Esther. Think of how Jesus condemned the lawyers for loading burdens on people that are too hard for them to bear. Think of the preference shown to the Hebrew-speaking widows in Acts 6, or to the rich in James 2. Or as the prophet Isaiah wrote, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right. Structural injustice is just in terms of unjust laws, unjust institutions, unjust practices should be no surprise for Christians. This is easy. Unjust, unrighteous people create unrighteous, unjust laws. That's simple, right? But sometimes people use the idea of systemic injustice to refer not to unjust laws or institutions or practices or habits as when we talk about, say, Jim Crow or redlining or slavery or things of that nature. Rather, we talk about structural injustice as this kind of vague, false consciousness. There's structural injustice out there among this group. Well, where do you see it? Well, it's just part of the system. Well, what system? Well, it just envelops everything. It's sort of a a presupposition, it's a, a foregone conclusion, it's an all-seeing eye, and the indictment engulfs us like a cloud, involves everything about me. Well, of course you'd say that, you belong to this particular group. I don't think this kind of injustice, an injustice based on group identity, is biblical. That is a kind of group essentialism, or race essentialism, a kind of prejudice, a kind of confirmation bias. It's even a kind of racism. It's postmodernism. And we see versions of this on the right and on the left. We all like to engage in, well, that group thinks this. They think that part of this group. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible says if you break this law or if you do this thing, that's unjust. And so that's what we need to do. Number five. Okay, we've thought about what justice is, what do we define it, how do we do it, is it individual or structural, and I said in this way it's both. Okay, number five, what responsibilities do civil governments have for doing justice? What responsibilities do civil governments have for doing justice? Justice should be the uppermost concern of our governments. Not equality, not rights, not freedom, but justice. We want a just freedom, a just set of rights, a just equality. You see? Justice is foundational. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. 2 Samuel 8.15. 1 Kings 3.28. Israel stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. 1 Kings 10.9. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, says the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Proverbs 29.4, by justice a king builds up the land. Yes, 
governments should have concerned themselves with equality and rights and freedom and peace and truth and order. But remember, we start with what our understanding of right is. And that determines what's a righteous freedom, a righteous equality, a righteous peace, a righteous order, a righteous set of rights. Right always comes before rights. See? Okay, so which standards of righteousness bear upon the state's work of doing justice? Where, where do we find the fine print in terms of the contract? The Ten Commandments? Second table of the Ten Commandments? Something in the New Testament? Everything the Bible calls sin? What righteousness are they to enforce? Well, the short answer is, here it is, protecting the Imago Dei, protecting the image of God and people. God established governments for the purpose of providing the conditions where God imagers would flourish as God imagers. And justice is measured by that standard. Genesis 9, 5, and 6 is the foundational text for understanding this. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made, man, God made man in his own image. That's the foundation. God made man in his own image. Therefore, I am giving you the right, the authority to shed blood for shed that blood that is shed. This is the original authorization given to governments. A government's authority does not depend on the consent of the people. It depends on God's requirement. Three times he says, if this happens, I require it. I require it. I require it. Humans receive the moral authority to form a government and employ coercive force and send you to jail, make you pay taxes for the purpose of protecting humans as God's imagers. Uh, Paul's commentary in Romans 13 affirms that God is a source of such authority. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God does, Paul doesn't mean God approves the immoral activity of every government, no, or that people shouldn't submit to the moral requirements of governments. He's just saying their authority comes from God. Four things I think are worth noticing from Genesis 9. Number one, the requirements of justice presume a symmetrical relationship and proportionality. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall be his blood be shed. It's not life for stealing a horse, it's life for life proportionality or symmetry. Second, that one-to-one -one symmetry, this, this is interesting, means that the justice mechanism God gives to man is self-reinforcing. Governments cannot do whatever they please. They are constrained by that same symmetry. So if the holder of the sword holds that sword in an unjust way, it comes back upon him like a boomerang. You see? So that dirty town sheriff who's just randomly shooting people, justice requires his own blood be shed. Or think of an obvious example. Whoever sheds the blood of man by Manchela's blood be shed. Does Hitler stand under that or over that? under. No government is over. Justice requires the assassination of 
an unjust governor like that. Third thing to notice, it authorizes humanity to prosecute crimes against humans, whoever sheds the blood of man, not crimes against God himself. Blasphemy, false religion, are not in view here. At least not until clear harm comes upon a human. How do you measure a crime against God? A crime against a human? You can measure. False religion or sin generally only warrants criminalization when a person is harmed or could be harmed. A civil government should not prosecute worshipers of Zeus for their animal worship or animal sacrifices, but it should prosecute a Christian scientist when that Christian scientist is withholding medical care from a child. Harm is coming to a citizen. I don't care if that's your religion. God has authorized us to act. You see? What that means is Genesis 9's justice mechanism implies religious tolerance. Fourth, therefore, God calls governments to enforce a fairly narrow standard of protectionist justice. There's plenty of sins that we do not criminalize. Government is called, not called to enforce. So when Romans 13 says, God has given us governments to punish the good, reward the good, and punish the bad, doesn't mean all conceivable goods, all conceivable bads. Well, certainly not. It simply means a certain subset of goods and a certain subset of bads that it's to reward and to punish. What are those goods and what are those bads? Well, there's the goods and bads that uphold and affirm a human being as made in image. And finally, the foundation for government authority here is profoundly theological, made in God's own image, which is to say it is universal. Let me, let me summarize the justice that the government has to enforce. It requires proportionality, symmetry. It keeps the rulers themselves accountable. It requires religious tolerance. It's fairly narrow and protectionist, and it is Universal. Everything a government does, every law it makes, every courtroom ruling it declares, every executive agency code it enforces, it does for the purpose of protecting and affirming its citizens as God imagers. Uh, I think Martin Luther King Jr. gets the, the basic idea when he says any law that uplifts human personality is just, any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now, Christians are going to disagree about how much justice requires. Does protecting and affirming the Imago Dei warrant universal health care or progressive tax structure or a ceiling on carbon dioxide emissions or math, national math standards for eighth graders or the existence of a federal aviation authority and the requirements of commercial airline construction? Do these types of positive actions yield negative re results? Well, th these are good conversations for us to have and we're going to disagree on them, and that's okay. But the point is, we now have a standard, the standard of what upholds the human person and protects the human person. Question six. What responsibility do individual Christians or church members have for doing justice? I think I've been talking about for 30 minutes, haven't I? Keep going. Yes. 
Let me sum up. If governments are under the common covenant to uphold human life, imago dei, Christians are under the new covenant, which is not a narrow, but which is a very broad, perfectionist uh, version of justice. A protectionist for the government, a perfectionist for the individual Christian. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in all the ways of righteousness and justice, and so show the nations what true righteousness and justice look like. Jesus came as the perfect image of God, then by virtue of being united to Jesus, Christian, you are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Therefore, the Christian's just and righteous life is one that is conformed to the image of the Son. We are putting on the new self, which is just and righteous in all ways. God is just and righteous. You see? So, how does a Christian do justice? Five quick answers. First couple might surprise you. First, Christians do justice by repenting and believing. We put our faith in Christ. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. Do you want to be just, human being? Put your faith in Christ. That is how you do justice. The righteousness of God is applied to, administered to us first by trusting in Christ. We must be justified. You see? Second, a Christian does justice by being baptized and joining a church. This act of submission to King Jesus and his people is the declaration that God's judgments are just and that all of his ways are right. We were singing it before, shout to the Lord. His judgments are correct. And he has called me to be united to this people and declared his. See, it's the public affirmation that one is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that God's ways are right. What we do by joining a church. Third, Christians do justice, listen to this, through evangelism. To proclaim the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is to declare how God has and will administer justice. To call people to repent and believe is to name their injustice. That's sin that you're living in, my non-Christian friend. That is unjust. And the king is coming and he will punish that. Good news. It's been paid for if you would only repent of your sins, turn away from them, and believe. Do you want a just neighborhood? Share the gospel. Fourth, Christians do justice by living a life characterized by justice and righteousness in every context. We learn to do what Christ says is right and we do it. We obey everything Jesus has commanded. Great commission, right? We make judgments according to Jesus' own law. Christian husbands give to their wives what is due them. Living with them in an understanding way. That is how you do justice as a Christian husband. Christian employers 
give employees the wages due them rather than living by sinful self-indulgence, James 5.4. Christian police officers will not extort money by threats or false accusations or use of excessive harm, Luke 3.14. A Christian citizens should be submissive to their rulers and authorities to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, Titus 3.1. In general... A Christian's concern for justice will show itself as concern for those who have been hurt by injustice, the abused, and very often the poor. The new covenant fulfills the old. The life of the justice and righteous envisioned by the Old Testament prophets remain relevant for the church. And fifth and finally, Christians do justice, trusting that justice will not finally be accomplished on this earth. So they await the Lord's coming. The judge is standing at the door, James 5, 7. We seek justice now, but we don't presume to have perfect knowledge, and so we rest in God's final judgment. So to summarize the five ways individual Christians do justice, we do it by being justified, by uniting ourselves to Christ's just people, by evangelizing others so that they too might be justified, by living in justice and righteousness in every domain and by awaiting Christ's final justice. What responsibilities does a church have to do justice? Very briefly, by declaring and teaching the ways of righteousness and justice. Not by going out and doing it, but by equipping the saints to go out and do it. The difference between a law school and a lawyer, between a med school and a doctor, the church in that sense is more like the law school, more like the med school. And so they teach the ways of righteousness and justice. That's where we get the fine print. So for instance, if a church declares something to be righteous, which the scripture calls wicked, we are an affirming church. That is an unjust church. Uh, by the same token, suppose the church accuses an innocent person of guilt and excommunicates her. That would be an unjust church. Churches do justice by teaching the gospel and pointing to gospel citizens. That's who Jesus is. And those who are the people who are with Jesus O nations of the earth, do you want to know what justice and righteousness are like? Look to Jesus, the Jesus of the gospel, and look to these people as we teach them the way of righteousness and justice. That is a just church. What is justice? Declaring God's judgments. By what standards? By the standards of the different covenants he gives us. Well, what does that mean for the government? Well, it means it has a very narrow protectionist, protect the imago dei version of justice. What does it mean for individual Christian citizens and Christian members, church members? Well, it means you follow and obey Jesus in all the ways of righteousness and justice, no matter what domain of life you're in. What does it mean for the church? It means we declare and point to Jesus and to his people. Amen? Amen? Let me pray.
Lord God, we give you thanks and praise that you are a just God and the foundation of your throne is justice and righteousness. We confess that we have not been a righteous and a just people. We have attended too little to the ways of justice and righteousness. We pray that in your mercy you would cause Bethany Baptist Church and Chevrolet Baptist Church and our, our Presbyterian Brothers Church and, and all the churches in, in Southern California and Maryland and the United States and around the world to grow in an understanding of what your Bible says justice and righteousness are. And help us to argue less about it. And help us to work harder to understand your book and what your book and your commands, Lord Jesus, would require of us and that we would live according to your standards of righteousness and justice. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.